Welcome to episode 101 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Jackson Hole Wine Club. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash TLS to learn more. Hello from Jackson Hole. I'm Stefan Abrams, your host and guide today. Each week, for over 100 episodes, I sit with someone connected to Jackson Hole to share their fascinating story about daily life. I feel we have so much to learn from each other, and I really intend to search out everyone I can to share their stories, which will teach us all a little bit about life outside of our everyday monotony life. Today's guest is Chris Koch, known to some as Dr. Koch, known to others as the Cowboy or the Cowboy Chiropractor, but probably his most cherished title is Dad and now Grandpa. I've had the pleasure of knowing Chris for about 15 years or so now. I would see Chris gracefully leading a dancer at the Stagecoach Bar or Silver Dollar Bar to a nice tune. During our conversation, I learned so much more about Chris, his life, and how I can look at life through a different lens. Chris shares with us his perspective of living in Jackson Hole before modern luxuries entered the valley, which was really only just a few decades ago. I feel Chris lives life as a true gentleman follows the code of the cowboy, and knows from experience real struggles and tough times. Please enjoy my interview with Chris just as much as I enjoyed sitting and visiting with him. Chris, delighted to see you this beautiful July afternoon, and thank you for taking some time out of your busy day and babysitting your son, Colby. That means a lot. Grandson. Your grandson, Colby. Yes, thank you. And... I want to start off with how you and your family is, are connected to Jackson Hole. How long have you been here? Since 1972. Okay. And um, while I was in chiropractic college, I had a student patient when I was in the clinic in um, the residency that was from Rock Springs. His father was a chiropractor in uh, Rock Springs, and um, asked me if I would be interested in going to practice with his father. And um, it didn't work out, but um, it introduced me to Wyoming. And um, I had come before um, because I took the state board in Wyoming in in early February 72 in anticipation of uh, coming here to practice. And um, so after about six months in Rock Springs, I was ready to move on. My thoughts were Lander or Jackson. And uh, I really was acquainted with Lander because I had a friend that whose wife was from Lander and we would visit. And um, this friend, by the way, was a fourth great grandson of David Crockett. No way. Yeah, and he looked like Crockett. Um, There never were any photos, but there were portraits. Mm -hmm. And this guy could have been um, a twin brother. So I looked at Lander, um, but then came up to Jackson and decided I liked it more. And um, it was a hard grunt. There had been a few chiropractors here that set up a practice for a very short time, but moved on quickly because the, but the business just wasn't here 
for them. When I opened my practice, I remember somebody called and said, what's a chiropractor? And (laughs) do you deliver babies? And I said, well, times are lean. I'll take a run at it if I get paid. And so anyway, it was was tough, but I was used to starving, you know, so um, prices were different. Um, I rented a place down that had just been built down by Sears, and I think it was a two-bedroom apartment for 110 a month. Wow. And, and uh, then I had an office next door in that apartment complex, and I think that was 130 a month. So times have changed. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You'd mm-hmm. be lucky to get a get a um, square foot of linoleum for those prices well you know when i bought my first house and it was in 79 Mm -hmm. and i bought it because i that property was zone core commercial Mm -hmm. and that's what i wanted and so i bought that place for fifty-five thousand. and i told them they were highway robbers they should put their masks on you know because that was expensive back then but my property tax at that time was 110 a year all right i can i can uh, handle that i miss that i bet yeah. <laughs> i'm i'm interested about a, a few things and and one one item that you had just said that resonated with me one is where is it that you grew up and then mm-hmm. also you said that you were used to starving so i'm interested to know where you grew up and why you said you were used to starving I grew up in a little farm town in Wisconsin, about 20 miles out of Milwaukee. It's suburbia now, but it was all farmland, which suited me to a T because I could run wild. And uh, my mother always said she kept tabs on me. She kept a pair of binoculars by the kitchen sink. And um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was pretty nice. But I was used to starving because going to school you know and technically i was in school for eight years but i had a i had a residency too after that in the clinic and they were pretty lean times i was working going to school trying to pay tuition i was married my wife was working in um, that endeavor also and a lot of people refer to you as the cowboy or Mm. a cowboy right did you grow up with the, the passion that you have today for horses? I did, but I didn't really get introduced to them in a big way till I got here in about 73. Okay. Also, you mentioned that your grandfather worked for... My, my grandfather was a farrier in the Russian cavalry. Okay. And the old man probably forgot more about horses than I'll ever know. And you mentioned something about your grandson is named after somebody that worked for cliff hansen for a bunch of years no 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 no. okay Um, my my apologies no roy martin Uh worked for cliff hansen okay and um he started um taking care of cliff hansen's cows when he got out of the service in 45 or 46 Mm -hmm. and and roy martin was my is my son-in-law's grandfather roy is passed on now um, several years ago, he um, was in his late 90s. Brad Mead wrote an article in the paper saying that there never was a man that put more miles on a horse or knew this country 
better than Roy Martin. And Roy, Brad Mead, and Matt Mead were, to my understanding, um, Roy Martin was very much instrumental in raising them. Hmm. Um, they were raised cowboy, you know, and uh, yeah, so, and, and he and Cliff were very, very close. So that was an extra because he knew this country and my daughter would babysit for him later on when he was 96, 97. And I remember my daughter coming home and saying, uh, Grandpa was telling me about this area or this area up the Grovant, and he mentioned this lake, and he said, uh, ask your dad if he's been there. I'll bet he has, you know, and then um, the, um, I'm losing my train of thought, but uh, he would he would mention things that um, nobody knows about anymore, like a buffalo jump up the Grovant where there are buffalo skulls and bones knee-deep. No kidding. Yeah, that the Indians up there would run them over this hill. And you could still find that. It's been a long time. Long, but it still exists there. Yeah. 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 Okay. I don't think there's another two or three people that know of it because mm-hmm. they kept it pretty quiet. And I remember my daughter coming home after spending time with Roy, and he was 96, 97. And my daughter said, Grandpa said, I think I'm going to get another horse because he'd live his life on horseback. And she said, Grandpa, you can't ride anymore. And he said, I don't need to. All I need to do is sit here and look at him and listen to him eat. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Now, you mentioned something about growing up cowboy and and about the Mead boys being raised cowboy. The Mead boys, yeah. Yep. To my to my understanding, I wasn't there, but this is sure. this is what I I got, and I think well, Brad still does cowboy, you know. Now, to you, being yeah. somebody who's passionate, it's not the horse that makes the cowboy; it's the person, their actions, how they live life that makes the cowboy. Could you define what cowboy is, and and how you take pride of somebody referring to you as the cowboy? I think. The terminology, the essence of the terminology has changed over the years. I think at one time in the 1800s, early 1900s, it was a job, although they still took pride in what they did, most of them. They were certainly on the lowest rung of the pay scale. They did it, some did it because they couldn't get another job, others did it because that's what they wanted to do. They enjoyed it, and I think that's much of it today. Those people doing it, and I'm talking about people because there's some pretty good cowgirls up there, out there, really good, better cowboys than I'll ever be. And uh, But they enjoy, they crave bonding with that horse. They crave being outdoors. There's still some cowboys left that I know of, especially on that Arapaho Ranch by Thermop or in Nevada, that all they do is horseback. They don't fix fence. They don't put up hay. Their job is horseback. And um, that's the goal of all of them. But um, um, you got to take what you can get. And, and Jackson has some very capable cowboys that spend most of their year 
construction and uh, carpentering, but they cowboy when they can. They do day work, whatever. Okay. I'm I'm interested to know with your passion for horses. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the things that you have experienced in riding horses back in the wilderness here in this area? Mm-hmm. And what is the coldest day that you ever got on your horse and why phil wilson and i crossed the snake river and i would think it was back in the 70s sometime hunting up under huckleberry ridge up in the park or in the rockefeller corridor and we crossed that river and we had just been to flag ranch to gas up and their thermometer said 24 below there and I remember bringing an elk back across the river. I had had half an elk on a pack horse, and he had half an elk on a pack horse. And about the middle of the river, the horses were getting lethargic and trying to stop. And I had a kick and kick and kick to keep them going because there were big ice chunks flowing down the river that I knew I didn't want to collide with. Uh-huh. Negative 24. Yeah. Was that a good day for hunting? Well, we got an elk. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, no, it was a tough day for hunting because it was so brutally cold. Um, I remember trying to reload my gun. I couldn't do it with gloves on. And the bullet, the, the casing was sticking to my fingers. Oh, gosh. And uh, I was trying to put it in. So it was more a matter of stupidity than uh, fun. Um, but I've always contended that um, young and stupid was way more fun than old and dumb. <laughs> they could put that on your uh, tombstone. They could, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, providing the coyotes don't get to me first. <laughs> now, was there a great need for you to go hunting at that wedding? Yeah, yeah, because the season was almost over. It was only open in that northern area uh-huh. yet, and elk was our food. Okay. I mean, period. And and I would say a big part of this community, elk was the food. Times were pretty darn lean, and we ate elk sometimes for several months at a time, and there wasn't much else to begin with. You know, times have changed drastically, and, and I don't regret that time. I don't regret it at all. We all did our, most of us did our own butchering. Mm-hmm. You know, the old timers taught me how to butcher and because uh, I couldn't afford it to take it in. And um, I remember there were times we're lean and if we found a dime, we would run to Jackson Drug and split a Coke. <laughs> Sounds like a fair deal. Well, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. It um, broke the monotony. Sure. You know, and so... It was something special. Yeah, and and I don't regret that at all. Mm -mm. I think that type of lesson teaches one to be grateful. Mm -hmm. Indeed. What do you feel that you're most grateful for? My children, my grandson, my horses, my practice, people in my life, and living in Jackson, even though Jackson has changed so, so much. And sometimes I get pretty disturbed because... And I'm being selfish here. We have people coming in that really never had a rural background. Sometimes I don't think they appreciate. And bastards disagree with me. But, uh, um, (laughs) you know, it's still a pretty wonderful place. I am not a opponent 
of progress as it is, um, and I see this place changing. I mean, you know, right from here, we could look out on Snow King and see elk most any time, mm-hmm. and those things are all gone, you know. And uh, but I but I still love it. I still love it, and uh, we have a different type of people. I don't really consider Jackson Hole Western anymore because I lived through the tail end of that Western era. In the 70s, it was still Western. You know, ranchers, cowboys, and whatever, agricultural. It's really not anymore, except for a few isolated instances. And I have a hat that says, make Jackson Hole great again. So someone asked me, what made Jackson Hole great? And I said, um, a sense of community, Community was strong. If you got stuck in the snow, first person that came along stopped to help because it was a community, but everybody also understood in time it was their turn. And what else made this place special, I think, was a sense of our history. How these early people, the hardships they had to go through to make this a community. And, and, as far as I can see, there's not much of a sense of history left. The new people coming in don't really seem, or most of them, in my observation, don't really seem to care much about the history. Um, they're here to play or whatever. And, and I, I think the history is important because, because every generation is built on the generation before. So true. So true. I, I know walking in here, Mm-hmm. You and I were talking, and I mentioned how special and wonderful it is that you get to watch your grandson. And mm-hmm. you said that part of that generation or idea of grandparents helping raise the kids has gone away, which is true. Right. And and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, and they were very, very important to me. And, and they were Depression-era right. um, yes. grandparents. So my, I, I mine thought— also. I thought everybody's grandparents were 80 years old, yeah. but no, that's not the case. No, no, and, and you're absolutely right. We can learn so much from the previous generations if we'll just listen. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not natural for young people to listen because they want to know it all. They get exposed to ideas wherever they come from, and um, um, all of a sudden they're convinced that those ideas are the end-all, be-all. And uh, whether it's political, religious, or what, um, but uh, it's not. And we really, we progress to where we're going through experience. Experience is our teacher. And I will listen to anybody, but if a 20-year-old starts telling me about what's important to life, he's talking about what's important to him at the time. Mm-hmm. His experience doesn't go far. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there was a horseman, Ray Hunt, who was an icon all over the world. And he used to come here, and he was very much a mentor of mine. If you would shut up and listen, you could learn something. Do you remember the movie Buck, Buck Brenneman? Hmm. The fellow that did the horse work for Redford's movie, The Horse Whisperer. Yes, sir. That was him. Well, Ray Hunt was his teacher, his mentor, and very much mine also. And he used to say, he said, two fellas are talking, 
And he said, oh, I can't get this darn thing to work. Um, and he said, one fellow's younger, one fellow's older. And he said, the younger fellow looks at the older fellow and said, you sure got good judgment. And the older fellow said, well, thank you. And the younger fellow said, how'd you get it? And um, older fellow said, through experience. And uh, younger fellow said, well, how did you get the experience? The older fellow said, through bad judgment. <laughs> So true, so true. I'll be right back with Chris after this quick message from the show's sponsor. Jackson Hole Wine Club, Jackson's newest and exciting wine club here in the Valley. Based upon subscriptions or wine deal of the week, you don't want to miss what the wine club of Jackson Hole has to offer. Take a visit to the jacksonholewineclub.com to see what this week's special is and sign up for the weekly email for the wine of the week. JacksonHoleWineClub.com, the place to be a part of a club. Wow, you're just showing me a picture here, and this is your grandson I'm taking it. Yeah, at about a year and a half. Awesome, awesome. I, I love it. I'm so happy for you and Hannah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. And so I, I would like for you to share with folks, because you talk about how Jackson was lean, when you moved here. Right. And I'm going to speculate, maybe there were a thousand, maybe 1,200 people in the 70s when you moved here. Maybe a little more, maybe not. Okay. I, I can't remember. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious as to how you made a living being a chiropractor, or did you find supplemental income to survive? I did a little bit of cowboying, although I can't say if I was an asset or detriment to those places. <laughs> Um, but I was learning. Mm-hmm. I was always learning. And um, it didn't take a lot, you know. Um, my rent on that place was 110 a month. And I remember a week between Christmas and New Year's, 72, 73, where I made $24. My wife was working too, which is always an asset. You know, they say behind every successful rancher, there is a wife with a town job. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so anyway, yeah, we made it. We ate a lot of elk, and elk were fairly easy to get at that time. You know, the Wilsons and Wieldens, who went way back to the 1890s, always helped me get an elk in those early days, and I was learning and uh, butchered myself. We ate elk, and um, there wasn't much else, but but just getting out with people was social, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, it was it was a good time. I have to say that people were entertainment starved during those days. A lot of people out of town did not have TV. So the Wilsons and the Wieldens being great pranksters, and they're my best friends, period. You know, they were very much my mentors. The boys were, were close to my age, a little younger, but... Uh, I was the entertainment. Um, they, um, they had a good time with me. They would put me on a horse, you know, and I was pretty lost there for a while. And, you know, eventually I got my own horses. I probably owned a hundred, you know. Kids had horses. Hannah had offers, some um, college scholarships to barrel race and such. And uh, my son cowboyed quite a bit as a working cowboy, you know. 
Both kids are better riders than I am, but they would, the Wilsons and Wilsons would take me out hunting or whatever, and I remember in particular, whenever they saw elk, they would bail off and shot, not shoot, I was still trying to get off my horse, much less pull a rifle, you know, I never got a damn shot, period, (laughs) and so anyway, then we'd go out, especially to get me an elk, and um, um, they... They took a shine to me. I don't know why, but they did. And they're still my best friends. But uh, anyway, we'd be riding along, and uh, they would bail off their horses and pull their rifles, and they could pull a rifle and step off a horse like Matt Dillon drawing. They were so damn fast, they grew up with it. That's all I ever knew, you Mm -hmm. know? And they'd run up to a hillside, and they'd be looking up there, pointing, Chris, Chris, get off your horse, get your rifle. And I'm still trying to get off my horse without falling on my head, you know. Then I'm running around trying to pull my rifle out, and and minutes are going by, and they're yelling, Chris, Chris, get up here, shoot, shoot, shoot. And I'd finally get up there, and I'd look and look, and I, where are they, where are they? And they're right up there, Chris, shoot, they're going to move. I can't see them, I can't see them. This go on for a few minutes, and then they would fall over, laughing on the ground because there weren't any elk up there at all. And, <laughs> and so, anyway, but I was always learning. And so I was, I was a pilgrim. Not anymore, although I'm sure there's still a few old-timers that think I am, Mm -hmm. you know. But uh, the, um, yeah, always learning. I remember that oftentimes we would cross the Snake River or the Hoback or the Grovant, and we'd do it in the dark, and we'd shot an elk, and um, we'd put half an elk over each horse and oftentimes walk our horse back. And we'd come to the river and an endeavor not to get wet, um, we would find a rock and climb up on top of the, sit on top of the half an elk on top of the horse. And that's how we crossed the river. And, um, you know, people say, well, that's really Western. But I never thought of it that way. To me, it was a situation people always had to figure out a way to get things done. Mm-hmm. And that's how they figured out how to get that done. That's right. Yeah. Use your resources. Yeah. Because there's mm-hmm. nothing else that's no. there except... You right. have to own the decision that you make. Yeah. You yeah. you you shot the elk. Right. You got to get it out there, and yeah. you went across the river to shoot the elk. So yeah. you got to figure a way to get yourself, yeah. the horse, yeah. and the elk back. And it might be November, and you don't especially want to walk in that water. You know, that might be waist deep. That's right. And so I've done that, hell, dozen, 18 times, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, um, but when I tell people about it, they go, no, no, that didn't really happen. Well, it did, mm-hmm. and it was common enough back then. But it's just something, another part of that old Western culture that we've lost. Mm-hmm. I can see that. I can certainly mm-hmm. see that. I, I would love for you to share, because you mentioned uh, how much people relied on each other when you first moved here mm-hmm. and kind of lost that. But give give us a picture of, especially during the wintertime when you first moved here, what was the social life like? What did you do to be social with people? What activities were there for, for you all? And how often would you get together? Shoveling snow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, yeah, we, 
had friends. Friends would come over, share a cup of coffee. I know in the outlying districts of Horse Creek and such, one of the big social events was sitting in Clark Wielden's house. Clark was um, Chancey's father and the toughest man I ever met and drinking coffee. And uh, I mean, when you left, you'd hear, come on back and share some coffee. And people were anxious to have company. Yeah, I I associate with having this podcast as sitting down visiting because mm-hmm. that's what I grew up doing with my grandparents. We right. would go to somebody's house and mm-hmm. we're going to go visit. And, yeah, right. And you just sit and listen and, and you have was, conversation. And it was turn visiting. We're mm-hmm. going to visit. Yeah. You know, um, I remember one of the old Mays. This is in the early 70s telling me that they used to go and he was born around 1905 and they used to go up to Crystal Creek every year because those Indians came in here as late, I understand, as the 1920s. And um, they would camp in that Crystal Creek region, and they were mostly from that um, Fort Washakie area, Wind River, and they would come in here and hunt elk for two months and dry it and whatever, and take it back because groceries could be get lean on the reservation. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, I know it's a fact because if you get on that mesa above Crystal Creek and look down in the spring, you can see teepee rings everywhere you look there. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. And um, up on that mesa, there were a couple old wiki-ups there that looked ancient, probably Vision Quest um um, dwellings for, for some of the younger people. But he told me that his dad knew several of those Indians. So he said around um, 1912, 13, his dad, mom, the family would be in a wagon, a horse-drawn wagon, and they would head up toward Crystal Crook. And they said it took two to three days. They didn't travel in a hurry. And he said they stopped overnight at different ranches, or farms on the way and they were always welcome because they would gab and gab and gab and people wanted to know the news mm-hmm. that was um news at the speed of wagon yeah mm-hmm. and he said that they lived in that indian village for a week or two and he said it was one of the greatest adventures of his life because he got to live indian for a couple of weeks in a teepee how cool yeah what a great experience mm-hmm. so You've said that you have ridden horses in unbelievably cold temperatures. Right. You've probably had over 100 horses. Mm-hmm. What is a story that you have to share with us today that if you told it in relationship to you being um cowboy that people would not believe? I don't know. You know, I've done a little bit of cowboying here and there helping rancher friends, and I've done it because I love it. I've done it to give my horses a job because horses are like kids and teenagers. They need a job because if they don't have a job, they get sour <laughs> and uh, um, don't want to work. And so I've had probably five really good horses in my life, incredibly good horses. One of them raised my kids, you know. They would swing on her tail and play Tarzan, huh. and, she, and she thought that she was their mother. But I had one horse that was off the Little Jenny Ranch in Bondurant, and it had always been a cow horse. And so I would take it on these cow endeavors, and 
the reality, it was a way better cowboy than I was. <laughs> I mean, just period. <laughs> and I swear sometimes, you know, we'd be herding cows or there'd be a wayward cow trying to, to quit the bunch, you know, and go home where we came from. And I swear it would look up, look up at me sometimes and say, keep your hands off the reins, don't screw this up, and I'll make us both look good. <laughs> and, but again, I was learning all the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, that was a wonderful time. That particular horse, it was a buckskin paint. It was a big horse, and its name was Buck. And Buck was just absolutely one of the best I ever ran into. And when I had that horse about two weeks, I had just bought it. And I didn't really know it yet. And for the most part, to get the most out of a horse, it takes time to bond. And a horse has to learn to trust you, and you have to learn how to trust a horse. And if there is not that trust relationship with a horse, the horse is a little cautious about giving itself to you and getting hurt. And so I had not known Buck long, and that particular year must have been in the 90s sometime early 90s it was a flood year and the cattleman's bridge of spring gulch was taken out it was a serious flood year and i was up above dornan's in that river bottom and things the water was flowing fast and i wanted to cross the creek and i crossed where i had crossed 50 times before a good gravel bottom so i asked the horse to cross the creek there i wasn't sure how deep it was but i was pretty sure we could do it you know and the horse refused and that was a learning experience for me when a horse gives you what you ask almost all the time okay and it's easy to get along with when they refuse there's a reason and you better ought to listen Hmm. but i wasn't smart enough at the time yet and so anyway he refused well i kicked him and jumped him in there and this crossing that was normally gravel had filled with that black silt Hmm. we got in the middle there and we were treading water for our lives The, the um water and that black mud was up to the saddle. The horse was struggling trying to get through there. It was kind of buck jumping a little bit. I was holding on for dear life because I did not want to come off that horse and then maybe have that horse fall on me and push me in. And so finally, the horse fell over and fell on its side. It made it up the bank without my impeding it. Mm-hmm. Made it up the bank to one side. I kind of sort of made it up to bank to the other side but we both struggled um because it was a bad situation that i had got us into and um so i'm looking at this horse on the other side of this creek and the horse runs down the creek and um i'm going damn it i just lost my horse and saddle you know i'm figuring this horse is just going to keep on running well it didn't about a hundred yards down it found a place and it crossed the creek at a place where it felt comfortable Mm -hmm. it was sharper than i was and uh, it ran back to me and stood right by me and i had never seen that before heard of that before i never expect to see it again but the horse was a better person than i was well i'm happy to know and and learn that you have learned so much from horses and you're a wiser fellow for it 
which helps me be a wiser person as well because I can learn from you. Yeah, and I had some really good mentors. I mentioned Ray Hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, he was unbelievable. What horses wanted to do for him was incredible. Hmm. But um, and then there was a lady by the name of Doris Ellis, Doris Spicer. She said she had been married five times. Her son-in-law, Robert Hansen, Cliff's brother, mm-hmm. said she had been married seven times, said that she had ridden a horse into the Wirt Hotel one time, got off and got a drink at the bar. And the old-timers said that she was probably the best horse person that ever came out of this valley. Um, Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But a lot of the old books talk about her. And regardless, she was something special Mm -hmm. with a horse. She taught me how to lay a horse down. She taught me how to drive a horse. Um, And these things I had not known before that, but they were a very important part of my education. And um, she had trained, and I hesitate to say break. Breaking a horse stems back to the time when people did not, a lot of of horses perhaps did not have time to spend with them. They got on and bucked him out and bucked him out and bucked him out until that horse submitted. And, and that was essentially breaking. Times have changed. There have been some incredible people that have come along and showed us, Ray Hunt, one, that you can become a partner, not a dominant partner, but a partner with this animal. And so this lady, people said, trained, gentled, hundreds of horses, and there never was anyone ever heard on a Doris horse, ever. Mm. She had that way with her. So she was very much a mentor of mine. When she was in her 70s, she was on a spirited little gelding riding with my kids who were teenagers. And and she taught me so much, and um, I'm so thankful for it because these were all people I learned from. Would you say that you're still learning from people every day every minute all right yeah yeah i'm i'm learning for you from you i'm learning how to ask questions <laughs> well if if you're learning from me how to ask questions um i need to probably give you some people to talk to well uh, that could do it a lot better well you know i've spent a bunch of time in court as an expert witness so i'm well aware of being questioned. Oh, okay. And All right. uh, and some people do it better than others. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Tom Dorrance, who was Ray Hunt's mentor, always said that we need to observe, remember, and compare. We all need to observe, remember, and compare. Yeah. That's, that's fabulous. Chris, I think that's a wonderful way to, to wrap up today's session. Mm-hmm. And I can't thank you enough for for you being you and sharing and providing what you do for this community. Well, thank you. It's 48 years now. And um, I just had a birthday last week, 72. And I got to tell you, I'm feeling older, more frail. And um, my reflexes with horses are not what they used to be. And so while I used to ride alone everywhere, I'd be 10 o'clock midnight on a horse 20 miles from a road up the Grovant, traveling along happy as a clam. I don't feel comfortable with it anymore. And I feel like it's a real 
and I'm coming down and it's like a failure. No, not a failure, but it's wonderful that you recognize um, how as we all mature in age that um, our limitations change. It does. It's a moving target. But you can't quit. Hannah, I've got a really bad shoulder, and uh, Hannah always says, Dad, I'll saddle your horse. No, you won't. No, you won't. (laughs) (laughs) We have some wonderful children. I always enjoy seeing Hannah and Rhett. Thank you. And and now a beautiful family with with a grandson. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you being here. You bet. All right. To learn more about Chris and cowboy life, please visit thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 101. Thank you for listening, everybody. Get out there and share this episode. Give us some ratings. Give us some reviews. And thank you for taking the time to share this podcast. Many thanks to everybody who helps me keep the Jackson Hole connection on the air. My buddy, Jim Ogier, my wife, Laura, and boys, my marketing director, Michael Morey, and my musical director, Luke Taylor. Thank you, everybody. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode. And I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.